Our scripture reading today is from 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 5, 14 through 17, and 12, 1 through 7. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, TK. I kind of want you to just keep going. Um, Thank you for reading that so beautifully for us this morning. Again, if we have not yet met, my name is Russ Ramsey. I'm the pastor here at Christ Presbyterian Church's Cool Springs location. Uh, A couple things I want to mention here before we get into uh, the message is that our our next door neighbors over there, the, the photography studio, they're 
their alarm has been going off, and so there's, there's a police presence in our parking lot. We're fine. Um, they're responding to an alarm that's going off next door. So in case you saw cop cars out there and was wondering uh, what's, what's going down, uh, that's what's going down. Uh, and I also want to mention year-end giving. Uh, so December is the month of the year where churches like ours typically see between 25 and 30 percent of our annual giving come in in that month. And uh, so it's a month that we kind of skew to, uh, to do that. And uh, when we're looking at just kind of projected to know where we are in terms of giving and spending as we're thinking about the next uh, fiscal year. And so just wanted to make... Uh, continue to just mention that uh, in, during here, here in the month of December. Um, there, are, there are a couple ways uh, that you, a couple things that you, two different things you can be giving to for Cool Springs. You can be giving to the general tithes and offerings, which we encourage anybody who calls this church home to do. Uh, and then we also have another fund that's for the build-out, uh, the Cool Springs build-out fund, which uh, you, you all and, and others have have generously given almost $140,000 to that fund uh, this year, which is, which is tremendous. It's gone a long way to really offset the costs of preparing this facility for being here in worship. So um, that's all I have to say about that. Um, okay. So David and Bathsheba, this, this uh, passage, this whole sermon series really has been an interesting thing to be in uh, during Advent, because Advent's a season uh, that is typically for many of us marked as, you know, we, we hang things on our wall that say things like joy and wonder, and we've been in the stories of Tamar and Rahab, which have been tough stories and sad stories, and, and, then, I was, and then this week, you know, catastrophe struck to these tornadoes that, that came through that have, there's not been anything like it in almost a decade, the, the severity of the storms that have gone up and down. And, it, and it's kind of got me thinking about, um, about the stories that we've been in in Advent, uh, is that, you know, I was watching the news yesterday, particularly of, of scenes of, of Kentucky uh, and places where, you know, there used to be structures and then they were just kind of gone. And it was, and, and it feels like to me that, that the, um, some of the stories that we've been in uh, with Tamar two weeks ago, Rahab last week, Bathsheba today, it feels a little bit like that almost, like there's just, there's just destruction in these stories. There's, there's catastrophe here. And uh, I, I have to just confess that it's been, it's been tricky for me as, as, as a sermon writer during Advent to figure out what am I supposed to do with this? You know, during, I mean, what these, what these women all have in common is that they're all in the lineage of Christ. So what knits them together is they're all women who, in a very real sense, gave us Jesus. But figuring out what to do with these three stories has been tricky without sounding repetitious. Uh, because one of the things that we've talked about both with Tamar and with Rahab, which also holds true with Bathsheba, is these are stories that really focus on the wonder that comes through seeing God do so much more than we could expect or anticipate in the most seemingly hopeless, hopeless situations. And yet that's ground that we've covered for the last couple of weeks. And so here we are again with, with Bathsheba, and we're seeing that, again, this is a woman in an impossible situation who is used in such a way that by the time a, a lusting king gets what he wants from her, her 
husband then becomes marked for death. By the time that all happens, she becomes eventually one of the mothers of Christ, one of the mothers who would continue the line from which the Savior of the world would come. But if we look at these three stories together, if we look at Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba all together, it does feel like we're standing a little bit in the aftermath of a tornado where there's uh, traces of order, of where order used to be, but they lie scattered around and there's just so much loss and there's so much destruction and there's so much from these stories that needs to be rebuilt. And so we're going to focus on Bathsheba uh, in, a, in a way that is different than I would treat this passage, the focus is going to be a little bit different than I would treat this passage if we were in a sermon series on, say, the life of David or a sermon series on Second Samuel. We're in an Advent series, and so we're going to look at her life. We're going to look at this passage, but then at about the midway point of this sermon, I'm going to turn to another text that I believe serves as a counterpoint for not just the story of Bathsheba that we've been in, but also Rahab and also Tamar, these stories that are presenting to us a picture of a world that is just broken. And so let's focus on Bathsheba, and then we're going to turn to a passage to see what came of her suffering. So this story is pretty familiar. If you're familiar with the Bible, I'm going to guess that David and Bathsheba is in the top 20 Bible stories that you might be familiar with. You'd have things like David and Goliath is going to be up there, right? Moses in the burning bush is probably going to be up there. Um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, you know, those sorts of things. But certainly in the top 20 is going to be David and Bathsheba. So what's happened in this passage is Bathsheba is acted upon. Uh, she's sent for and taken by a man who had all the power in the relationship. In fact, the language, when you look at it, is really anything but consensual. David saw her. David asked about her. David sent for her. David took her. That's the language. And then by David's actions, Bathsheba lost. She lost her husband. She lost her home and as the story would later tell us, she even lost the child that she conceived with David here. So it's a sad story. It's another sad story in a line of sad stories. And when David took Bathsheba, he lost too. It cost him dearly. First and foremost, he sinned against the Lord. Later in this sermon, or in this service, we're going to read Psalm 51 as a confession of sin together. That is the psalm that David wrote after being confronted by Nathan, seeing his sin and repenting. It is his song of repentance in response to his sin against Bathsheba. So he sinned against the Lord, but David also sinned against his friends too. When David saw Bathsheba, he asked about her, and he was told three things. That's Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. And so when David sees her, he knows three things about her off the bat, that she is a human being with a name, that she is somebody's daughter, and she comes from somewhere, and that she is bound to another. She's a married woman. And so when David sends for her, there's no question 
that his intent is to sin against her and against all in that line. If you dig a little deeper into the story in 2 Samuel about David, you find a pretty heartbreaking uh, Easter egg, as we call it these days, uh, at the end of 2 Samuel, which is a chapter in Scripture that's devoted to telling the story of David's mighty men. Have you heard of David's mighty men? That would be short for David's special ops, David's uh, special forces, his band of brothers, his secret service. These would be the people uh, that David went to war with, his inner circle. These are people that were with him. There, there are 37 of them mentioned, just 37 of mighty men. And their exploits are recorded there in 2 Samuel 23. We find this list of names. And in these stories, we read about how David's mighty men, would hide, they would hide with him in caves while Saul, the king, was seeking David to destroy him and to wipe him out. How they would ask David to be able to go and fight on his behalf. They would walk alongside him and they would be kind of their heads on a swivel looking for any danger to protect him. There's a story where David's hiding out in a cave. He's exiled from Jerusalem. He just wants to go back. And he has that, well, can any of you like remember the taste of the water from your childhood home? Like if somebody handed you a glass of that water. David had a moment like that where he just wanted a drink of water from the spring in Gihon in Jerusalem the water that he grew up drinking as a kid. And he mentions it while he's hiding in a cave to his mighty men. Oh, man, I'd give anything for just a, just a, a, a drink of water from that spring. And a few of his mighty men sneak off, and they sneak into Jerusalem, and they get him that water, and they bring him back this skin of water, and they hand it to him in the cave, and he, and, he, and he pours it out. I heard a preacher once describe it during the Cold War. It'd be like going to get a glass of water from the cooler in the Kremlin. You know? And that's what they do for him. These are people who put their loyalty to David and their duty to protect him above protecting their own lives. Would you care to hazard a guess as to two of the names on that list of 37 mighty men? It's in the Bible, so you can check me on this. 2 Samuel 23, one of the names is Eliam, Bathsheba's dad. Another name, the last name on the list, is Uriah the Hittite. What that tells us is there's no way that David didn't know who Bathsheba was. David stood in Bathsheba's kitchen island, stood at Bathsheba's kitchen island and ate chips and salsa with her husband. Like that, they knew each other. They were in each other's lives. They were friends. They had met. There's no way that they hadn't met. And so when David took Bathsheba, he took one of his best friend's daughters. And he took another of his best friend's wives. Think about that. Everybody in this room has in some way been close to the catastrophe of infidelity and the ripple effects that go out from that. And it runs so deep. And that's what David does here. He detonates that bomb. Now, yeah, it's true that Nathan the prophet comes along and powerfully confronts David in a way that David's eyes are open and he repents. And some good things come out of David and Bathsheba's marriage. They end up married and, and they have, uh, well, they become the parents of the would-be King Solomon. 
And yet, as we noted in the sermon about Tamar, one of the things that a passage like this gives us is it gives us a reminder of the kind of world that we're all born into. We're born into a world where stuff like this happens. And that is a world that is in need of rescue. We all need saving. And that's been kind of the cumulative, I think, effect of looking at Tamar and last week Rahab and this week Bathsheba. All these women who are born in and woven in to the line of Christ. I want to turn to another passage. I'll read it for you in a minute, but if you'd like to turn there, it's Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 46. But it's a text that I think serves as a counterpoint. Because if, if Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba, if these stories are telling us about the nature of the world into which we're born then this story is a counterpoint about the world that God is making it into. Luke 1 gives us this passage. It's actually the text that's right after what I'll be preaching on next week, uh, the Annunciation when the angel comes to Mary and tells her that she is going to give birth to the Christ, the Messiah. What happens after that is Mary prays a prayer or sings a song that's called the Magnificat, which is Latin for magnify, And that's what I want to look at. I want to look at the song that comes out of Mary as she is responding to the news that in this world that is so broken, the things that happened to Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba are common. A savior is being born. A redeemer is coming. In this song, the Magnificat, Mary responds to the news of the Messiah's coming. And her prayer encapsulates not just what's happening to her, but really the entire history of Israel's sorrows, which would include Bathsheba's. And what she sings is a song that frames Israel's entire existence as one that has been waiting for this, that's been waiting for this moment to be delivered from the sorrow that broke Bathsheba's heart and Tamar's heart and Rahab's heart, from the abusive behavior that corrupted David's spirit, a savior that would redeem us and save us from the fragile mortality that took their firstborn son. And so here's Mary's prayer, the song of her heart after hearing the news of the Messiah's coming. I'll just read it to us. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts and in their hearts. And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. And he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. What Mary's song is doing is it's really continuing a song that the angels have been singing about this. At the Annunciation, well, when the angels appear to the shepherds, they sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Peace. 
When the angel visits Mary at the Annunciation, he tells her that she's going to bear the Christ. And he says, his song is the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. When Mary sings her Magnificat, this is crucial. She's not inventing the importance of the moment. She's not singing the song to say, what's happening to me is really important and I want everybody to remember this. Instead, what she's doing is she's participating with the divine in worship. Worship is what comes out of her, the sense of wonder. And so I'll ask you, like, what draws from you a sense of wonder? What is the song of your heart? Because here's the thing, all of us have one. We all have a song in our heart, something that comes effortlessly, something where we know all the words. But for some of us, for many of us, our song is not unlike the song of Bathsheba or Tamar or Rahab or David or whoever, where, where we don't really have redemption in view, we just have the brokenness in view. Sometimes the song that comes out of us is a song of shame or it's a song of fear or anxiety or anger or pride or the need to get somebody's attention and then their approval? What is the song in you that comes most effortless, that flows out of you? And who do you sing it to? Because you have a Magnificat in you, a song of response to the wonder you see. You have a song that magnifies what you think is the most important thing. The question is, how big is the world? that your Magnificat magnifies? Are you stuck in a small story or are you continuing the song of the angels? Mary sings this song, it's deeply personal, but it's not private. It's a song that she's singing that matters deeply to her, but it's, but it's for everybody and it's about everybody. It's deeply personal though. She celebrates the specific wonder and grace that God has poured out on her. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, because he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, she sings. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. What's she doing there? Is she singing this praise because she got picked? You know, is she saying, look, he's looked on my humble estate. All generations will call me blessed. He has done great things for me. It's easy for us, for the extent of our praise, to be centered on what God has done for us recently. Right? What have you done for me lately, God? So we might say my Magnificat is really kind of based on this tomato basil soup that's just rocking my world right now. Like, Lord, I magnify your name for this. You know, uh, this three green lights in a row. Uh, what a great gift you've given me here. You know, the, 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 these, are, these are the prayers of small-minded people living in a small world. God, you are only as good as my memory of your gifts. And your gifts are only as good as what I'm kind of into in the moment. But Mary's song, turns out, is not just a personal song about what happened in that moment. 
uh, it's not just centered on what God has done for her lately. It actually looks back to an ancient wonder. She says, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in their thoughts and in their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's, she's telling the story of Israel as a nation, right? He's exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. The rich, he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, his covenant that he made to keep them and to never let them go. As he spoke to our fathers, and then she says to Abraham and to his offspring, which is the lineage of Christ that we're talking about. See, the coming of Christ looks back on all the suffering that the world has ever known, all of it, including David's, including Bathsheba's, including Uriah's, including Eliam's, and it proclaims a mercy and a grace that will put everything right. In the coming of Christ, so much is happening that Mary is singing about in this song. And to conclude this sermon, I want to mention four of them, and they'll go quickly. But four things that we see in the coming of Christ from this song. The first is, in the coming of Christ, we see that God's, I love this, we see that God's mercy predates us. That's a very comforting thought, that God's mercy and grace predates us. God's mercy to Mary traces back further than she can see. And the same is true for you. God's provision for what you need comes through ancient promises made on the other side of the world in a language that is not your native tongue. In other words, it's God's promise to keep, and it's an old promise to be faithful. It's not based on some fickle notion of how well God likes you now or in any given moment. The story is bigger than that. His promises are from generation to generation as mercy predates us. Number two, in the coming of Christ, we see that God has opposed the proud. He's taken the mighty off of their thrones these voices and these presences that seem insurmountable, that seem like there's no hope of overcoming the force and the power of these people and institutions and authority trying to control. The days of what David did to Bathsheba are numbered. Sadness will end. The question is, does this draw from us a song of praise that God opposes the proud? It should and it should also draw from us a prayer of desperation asking God to oppose the pride in us. Because just as Nathan confronted David, the redeemed soul should cry out like David, somebody oppose my pride. Oppose my pride. I will destroy my life. Right? Thwart the tiny kingdom that I'm building. This is part of Mary's song in response to the coming of her Lord, that God tears down the things that pride tries to build in order to control. Third, in the coming of Christ, we see that God has exalted the humble and filled the hungry. God provides for us in ways that we can't see, in unexpected ways. He intercedes for us in our deepest needs. When you think about the mission of Jesus, we see that. He didn't just come uh, 
to teach us how to live right. Jesus didn't come to be primarily an example. Follow my lead, do what I do. Because he knew that we couldn't live right. He knew that we couldn't live the perfect life that he came to live in our place. So the story of my rebellion against God is so much bigger than even I understand. I couldn't rescue myself. This child in Mary's womb would do more than we would know to ask or imagine. He would satisfy our deepest longings to be known and to be loved without condition as God's beloved children. And that's the hunger that's in us. That's the hunger that is deep in our souls. And fourth, let me go through those first three again. In the coming of Christ, we see that God's mercy predates us. And we see that God has opposed the proud. And we see that God has exalted the humble and filled the hungry. Finally, in Christ's coming, we see God keep his promise to rescue his people. Mary's song isn't because God surprised her with an unexpected blessing. She doesn't sing because God is doing something unexpected. She sings because God is fulfilling a long-expected promise. Finally, it's not that she's saying, I have no category for this. She's saying, we've been waiting for this forever. Mary is reaching back. In her song, she says, you promised Abraham that he would redeem and that he would restore. He promised David that the Messiah would come from his line, from his and Bathsheba's line, and now that's happening. So on a personal level, yeah, this must have meant immensely more than Mary could say. But what was so meaningful to Mary was also good news for the sake of the entire world. A world of loss, a world of betrayal, a world of abuse, a world of injustice, a world of pride and manipulation. The message is hope has come. When it felt like there was no possibility of hope, hope has come. By way of a miracle, by way of the intervention of God himself. So as we're going into this Christmas season, as we're in this Christmas season, God is doing so much more than just managing the little details of our little worlds, right? He's changing history. And the story is huge. So what song will that draw from you as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ? What is your Magnificat, your song of praise in response to Christ's coming? Mary's song is a continuation of the song of the angels who sang to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest, and on earth he has brought peace, peace between God and man through a baby, a long-expected Savior, the ancient promise. So this holiday is a time to wonder at what God has done. And the response to wonder we see from Mary is worship, is to worship him. So how would you praise him for what he has done for you? How would you praise him for what he has done that is bigger than you? May your celebration of Christmas be marked by your worship of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way that stories like David and Bathsheba are not just cautionary tales to tell us 
to brace ourselves because it's a hard world. But they're stories that are intended to draw from us a longing for the hardness of this world to be softened, for the brokenness of this world to be healed and redeemed and restored and set right. Uh, Father, would you give us a capacity to wonder and to hope and to trust in what it is that you're doing. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your kindness and your patience with us, the grace that you lavish upon us. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.